This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? I am not skin. We are not handing the can around. Saying to women, I'll go to the police, is simply another way of shutting people up. Obviously, I want more teeth than uh, jaws, I'll be honest with you. Hi, I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast, and welcome back to the party room. And I'm Annabelle Crabb, uh, current stand-in host of Insiders, uh, attempting here the rare double stand-in as stunt PK for this party room while the real one's flying to Gama. But then next weekend, PK will be uh, hosting uh, Insiders. And then after that, Fran Kelly. So, confused? I'm confused. Me too. not only are you standing in for PK in the party room, you're standing in, as you say, for Barry on Insiders. Next week, PK stands in for me on <laughs> RM Breakfast and then for you on Insiders. Oh it's like a roundabout of presenters. It's shocking. And it's been a sort of confusing week in politics too, but we'll get to the bottom of that, won't we? Yeah, and the sort top of. of it. Let's start at the top. Um, whatever way you spin it, Annabelle, I reckon the government's had a, had a ripper start, obviously, to this parliamentary session. They won the unwinnable election. They got their tax cuts through in double time. Time. They put pressure on Labor in all sorts of ways last week. Labor folding this week started off with a you know post-election news poll surge. No, no surprise about that. In fact, who cares? Who believes news start really well, yeah, anymore? It's a, it's I mean, like, news poll anymore? It's like news poll edging back into the water for the first time. Hi, how does my swimsuit look? And so everyone's a bit like, mm, you, you caused all that trouble. Unsurprisingly, the news poll did indicate that uh, support for the Morrison government had risen. Look, it's pretty rare for a re-elected government after an uh, election to kind of be on the nose straight away. People don't really get buyer's remorse until a bit later, typically, when they've just elected a government. But, you know, um, the issue, I think, for the opposition is really, it's not news poll, it's how they regroup as an organisation and set sail into this new period of opposition. And something really interesting happened on Tuesday this week in the caucus meeting. Anthony Albanese stood up and said, look, you know, this is a government that has essentially a sympathetic Senate. So this is going to happen again and again where bills that we don't like and that we object to and that we speak against are going to go through anyway. The he compared Senate, it to John Howard's 2004. Well, that's, I mean, that's Didn't he, when John Howard did have a double majority. That's right. I mean, John Howard had the Senate. Well, this is super rare in Australian politics. Which he later claimed to regret, actually. Well, I know. I mean, that was so interesting, um, the Senate that um, John Howard had control of, allowed him to run away with it and work choices. legislate work choices, which is what brought him down. So, I mean, there's a reason why the Senate is there and there is a reason why in the great wisdom of the Australian public we, we tend to elect Senates that are going to lightly persecute the governments that we've just elected in the lower house. But Anthony Albanese is right that this is a Senate that's easier for the coalition mm. than the last one. If the Greens and Labor um, both oppose a piece of legislation, the government only needs to get needs to get four out of the six crossbenches in the Senate. And if it can get one nation, and one nation does habitually vote with the government, uh, and they can get either the two Centre Alliance senators or uh, Cory Bernardi and well, Jackie he always Lambie. goes with the government, basically, Cory Bernardi. That's right, yep. Uh, then, you know, they're kind of, it's it's not a bad equation for them. So for Labor, this is going to come up again and again. And people, So what was Albo trying to do with this pitch to the caucus? He was saying, we are not the government. So... Get used to There's it. a limit to how much we can do, right? Because for the last six years under Bill Shorten, there's been a really different approach. There's been a sort of leading from opposition approach. There's been policy formulation and this is what we're going to do. And in some cases, they've kind of 
propose stuff that the government's then done. But I don't think it's going to happen that way under Albanese, who makes the point that they're not as influential in this government as they were in the last and the one before. And that is causing some internal issues, yes, because there are lots of Labor colleagues who say, look, hey, we decided on all these policy directions because we believe in them. What is the point in folding on all these things that we believe in? If we do that, what do we stand for? So that is the essential cultural struggle that's going on right now. So I understand the cultural struggle. If we believe in them, why are we folding? Mm -hmm. But the political reality is what Anthony Albanese is trying to talk about, which is what's the point of just opposing, opposing, opposing when this government's just been elected? Half the population will go, well, hang on, you're not listening to our the mandate we gave the government, that's one point. And also, if you just oppose everything, it means some good parts of legislation that actually help people won't get through and Labor will cop the blame for that. Right, and the tax cuts is a classic example because Mm. Anthony Albanese says, hey, listen, I'm not going to be the Labor leader that tries to stand in the way of tax cuts for low-income earners, tax cuts that I advocated for and so did the rest of us at the last election because I've got an objection to something that's going to happen in a few years' time. So, I mean, it's controversial because there are plenty of people in his party who believe that voting through the tax cuts for higher-income earners is absolutely anathema to what Labor believes. On Tuesday, Kim Carr got to his feet. Now, he's a significant figure and also a like a long-term adversary of Anthony Albanese. Just because they're both on the left doesn't mean that they like each other. There's in fact, Victorian left and oh, there's New man. South Wales left. Like, seriously, the enmity between those two is probably worse than you see between actual different sides of factions and parties, yeah. So Kim Carr got up and he said, look, why are we voting against things that are actually in our party platform? Now, he was talking about some legislation in response to the Royal Commission on the mistreatment of children in institutions. There's a part of that legislation, a tangential part, that involves mandatory sentencing, right? And Christina Keneally addressed the caucus and said, we won't oppose this legislation on the lower house and then we'll hive it off to a Senate inquiry. And Kim Carr said, look, why would we vote for something that contravenes part of our platform, which is opposing mandatory sentencing in all of its forms? So this piece of legislation sort of became a proxy... Mm, A Trojan horse for... Right, and this is a huge question to be answered internally. And I think it's going to take them a while to sort it out, I suspect, and maybe a bit of time and space from the last election result might sort it out for them. News poll aside, the truth is that in politics these days, leaders don't really get so much of a honeymoon period, and Scott Morrison has found that out over the last couple of days. Earlier in the week, two women who worked for Liberal politicians have come out publicly and claimed that their sexual assault complaints perpetrated by former Liberal staffers, is the allegation, were internally swept on the carpet. That's Mm -hmm. reignited a whole debate around women in the Liberal Party and the culture in the Liberal Party. Earlier in the week, I spoke with Catherine Greiner on RM Breakfast. She's a prominent businesswoman. She's a Liberal Party member for over half a century and she's had it. It starts with the PM. And saying to to women, or go to the police, is simply another way of shutting people up. And so it's not good enough. To my view, the, uh, the Liberal Party has got a, a cultural issue and it needs to address it. You know, the Prime Minister is the most powerful person in the, in the country. He can pick up his phone to anybody. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest he pick up his phone to somebody like Elizabeth Broderick. Or to the other Morrison in our lives, General Morrison, who looked at the cultural change that needed to take place in the army and asked them to come and have a cup of tea and say, look, 
I'm the boss here. I've got to fix this. Cultural change starts from the top. Catherine Griner, she was fired up. She had a message directly for Scott Morrison. What does he need to do? Look, the extraordinary thing that's really been demonstrated since the intervention of these former staffers during the week, and Chelsea Potter, one of them has got a column today in the nine newspapers, is that there is really no internal process for dealing with these sorts of complaints, which for any organisation is pretty unbelievable, you know. Well, except I I spoke with Karina Ocatel, who's the vice president of the Liberal Party uh, on the program, and she said, well, lots of organisations don't have these processes. You know, cricket clubs don't have some cricket, local cricket clubs. I'm thinking... This is the okay. Liberal Party, yeah. Liberal Party of Australia. I'm not sure that the local cricket club is a great analogy. I mean, this is an organisation and a structure that has been told for some time that it's got problems with advancing women through its ranks. I mean, of the Liberal Party members, only 25% of them are women, whereas Labor and the Greens have about 50%. I mean, that is a structural issue that they've kind of been having inquiries into and, in fact, the reason why I suspect this is all coming up this week is that the federal executive of the Liberal Party is meeting tomorrow. So these women are making sure that there is maximum public pressure to actually come up with something concrete to address these issues that women are having. I mean, don't forget, of course, that during the time of the leadership change a year ago, there were allegations of bullying and a culture inside the party that was inhospitable to women. So this stuff is all related to each other. Well, the PM kicked off a process, but it's a year on and we haven't heard anything. Well, it's being, I mean, it's being considered at the federal executive tomorrow. So, you know, that's why we're talking about it this week. And there's a lot of pressure now to actually cough up something substantial as a result of that process. Yeah, we're recording this on Thursday of the second sitting week as we head into the long winter break. I think it's time for a party. Amy Ramikas, political reporter with Guardian Australia. Welcome to the party room. Thank you for having me. Two big weeks. How are you holding up, girl? Oh, I'm pretty broken. I would say I'm a, a trash fire of a human being at this stage. Uh, and if I could have all of the espresso martinis in the world right now, I would. We're serving them up any minute now. Just stay put. <laughs> now, I mean, it's sort of, it probably is some kind of international human rights violation, but you have been detained at your desk watching Question Time for the whole last fortnight. Every cut, every thrust, what has struck you about the tone of things this week? I think this week is, uh, I think what we've seen is that the government is a little bit shocked with with new Labor. I mean, Labor is obviously still trying to work out who it is after after the election lost, but the government is now trying to also work out how it responds to an opposition it no longer really understands. And that has been really, really interesting with this weakest link strategy that Anthony Albanese has kind of like instigated throughout question time. It's no longer big motherhood statements about what Labor's going to do. It's actually just questioning the government, sort of saying, what are you doing on this? Why have you said this misleading statement? Why have you screwed up here? And you've kind of seen them really struggle to answer that. Who are the weakest links? Well, I think Angus Taylor has been nominated as a pretty early on weakest link. They've had some fun with Angus Taylor this week, let's put it that way. Melissa Price got a look in yesterday, which might be a little unfair at times. We had Mark Colton, who I'm sure no one has ever actually heard of before. I mean, I covered this That's thing. kind, Amy. <laughs> I know, but when he came up to the dispatch box yesterday, I was like, who is, who is that? And then I was like, oh, wait, assistant <laughs> trade minister. 
So, you know, like... In the Howard he... government, they used to schedule a minister, a question to the leader of the National Party at about Dorothy Dixon number 11, and I used to call it the comfort stop because that's when you'd <laughs> nick out for a wee. <laughs> so unkind. Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a pit stop in my brain where I'm like, la, 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 la. But I usually do save that for when Michael McCormack or Sliced White comes to the dispatch box, as I like oh, to call it. Enough. So... E- enough. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that... That whole strategy of Labor's this week, you know, why did you mislead? Why did you mislead? Not using the word liar. I guess they've been, I miss, might have missed this, but I guess they got told off for that or you're not allowed to use it. Anthony Albanese put out a, um, an edict to his oh. colleagues a month or so back saying that they were not to use the term lie when describing ministers' conduct because he felt that it had been overused over the last little bit and that it blunted the significance of that word should you ever choose to deploy it. But look, there was pressure on the government, Amy, over Newstart. It's been building over the last few weeks. We've had a number of backbenchers standing up and saying, yes, I agree with these people who call for Newstart to be lifted. There was a spectacular intervention this week from Barnaby Joyce under the headline, I'm skint. He claimed his $211,000 income was spread thin, was the term, and sort of went on to say that sometimes just a cup of coffee at the end of the week with his partner felt like a real treat. Now, he did cop a fair bit of flack for comparing his 4000 a week salary to someone on Newstart, which is $278 a week. He walked those comments back a bit. I am not skint. We are not handing the can around. What I'm trying to show is that uh, obviously in circumstances in anybody's life you get a sense, a greater sense of empathy. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, fair point. He was making the broader point that Newstart needed a boost. Do you think he got that point through? Uh, no, because I think, as as usual, Barnaby Joyce's mouth just tends to get Barnaby Joyce into trouble more often than not, no matter what his intentions are. And, I mean, like, that was the issue with this. It's not that he's had a change of heart. That's fantastic. We should have people advocating to raise New Start, especially national MPs who we know represent some of the poorest electorates in the country. But to turn it around where he makes it about him because his six-figure salary is slightly less than his previous six-figure salary bordered on the ridiculous. And uh, this idea that politicians need to have personal experience in order to empathise with a large chunk of Australia is something I have an issue with. Though we do keep asking them, could they live on $40 a day? So we are inviting that, I suppose. Well, I think he's been pretty clear that he could. I just think it's interesting. One of the other things that's obviously changed in his circumstances is that he's got a lower income uh, and he's also got two families to support. And I just always think of that. uh, He was part of a government that talked about Indigenous people making lifestyle choices to live in remote communities. I'm thinking, well, that's a bit of a lifestyle choice you've made there, isn't it? (laughs) He's also taken to the Federation Chamber to say that he doesn't think he can be as as powerful an advocate for New Start now because, because... because of the headline, I'm skint. He said that, that was, you know, a bit of a misrepresentation of what he wanted to say. However, his comments did point out that, you know, like a cup of coffee, as you said, is is a treat and they rarely go out to dinner anymore. And also made the point that he doesn't have a dishwasher. I was not aware that a dishwasher was the new sign of, like, of the bougie in this country, but <laughs> apparently, yes. Yeah, well, I think the best stat, really, if you're comparing Polly's pays and people on Newstart, is I think the Polly's allowance for staying overnight one sitting night in Canberra is $288 a week, which is 10 bucks more mm-hmm. yeah. than you start for the whole week. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, we've had this interesting conversation this week about the, I mean, partly fueled by Barnaby Joyce's intervention, about what it is to be poor and um, the experience of people who are living on Newstart. The government is still centrally pushing back 
even though the chorus of voices to increase the New Start allowances um, seems to be escalating every week. Michaelia Cash, the Employment Minister, released some job active figures this week saying that about 80%, I think, had payments suspended because the recipients have missed appointments with their service provider. Now, this really conjured up this quite antique kind of dull bludger analysis that was ventured into by Channel 7 and then after a huge backlash was retracted by them. How has that analysis been received, Amy? Well, it's a bit of a Deidre Chambers, what a coincidence that we have these figures released <laughs> this week after two weeks of we need to raise new start. But I think this idea of, you know, the dull bludgers and my dad reminded me actually that there used to be a family called the Paxtons in Australia that oh, Paxtons? You don't yeah. remember the Paxtons, Amy? <laughs> well, Amy would have been a tiny baby yes, when the Paxtons actually, were I think on a flash a in her mother's eye. It yeah, was a current um, affair. It was inter- interviewing this family and they, none of them will get a job. They've all been offered jobs to move to resorts and, you know, sweep around swimming pools and they were jobs were too good for them. It was the national hating game. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, well, he reminded me of that because he said that that's what this week's, you know, commentary has kind of reminded him of, of like that we need to demonise people for, you know, being on Newstart because our taxpayers go to that. And he said, oh, this is just Paxton's 2.0 and then explained to me who the Paxtons were. So I think that this idea that, you know, that it's a choice to be poor and you should be punished for it has actually left most, most normal people's consciousness. I don't think that people have that idea of doll bludgers anymore. And that is because it's not like, you know, a group of siblings who just want to sit around at the beach all day and not take up resort jobs. Mm. It tends to be people over 55 who can't find work or have chronic health problems or have just been sort of left behind and everybody knows somebody like that. So I think it was a bit of a miscalculation by the government this week. A couple of miscalculations by the government in the sense that one of the major things the government wanted to do this year was get through its so-called union busting bill, the Ensuring Integrity Bill. It got it through the lower house because it's going to get everything through the lower house because it's got the numbers there. Um, the Senate sent it off to a committee for a few months. But awkwardly, I thought anyway, for the government, while it's calling for more integrity in unions, it's um, moving very slowly on the notion of a National Integrity Commission, which it did commit to last year, but we've seen little sign of it. And then up pop these revelations, pretty startling and shocking revelations around Crown Casino on the Nine Media this week. And uh, the, the sort of the conjunction of all of that has really turbocharged calls for the National Integrity Commission for the government to get on with it. And uh, no one says it better than Jackie Lambie. Obviously, I want more teeth than uh, jaws, I'll be honest with you. You know, so, but I'll tell you now, I would consider telling them where to stick their bills until they put some law and, some law and discipline on themselves because I've had a gut full of it. Okay, so, Amy, <laughs> what can Jackie Lambie sink her giant teeth into? What does this threat mean? Well, she's the swing vote in a lot of cases where Centre Alliance is on one side and One Nation is on the other. So she does actually have a, a lot of power in that sense. I mean, she'll be the deciding vote in the Medivac repeal legislation. Uh, she could be very instrumental in getting the insuring, insuring Integrity Bill through, although, you know, that one, they need a few more as from the crossbench as well. And who knows what else is going to th- be thrown up because we don't actually know a lot about the government's legislative agenda at this point. 
point. So she does she does have a point. I mean, she was an important vote in the tax package as well. Mm. But whether it actually forces the government to do anything, I mean, who knows? I mean, Christian Porter has said, oh, we're getting to our integrity commission. Uh, that's the one that's going to be all behind closed doors and you won't be able to report on it until the conclusion of a court case, if there is any. And that's right, only yeah. if there's a guilty verdict. He said we're getting to it. Labor was going to do it in the first 12 months, that they've got more time. But it's not going away. The Greens are on board with this. Labor is on board with this. I think the general public is on board with this. I mean, I yeah, think absolutely. this could be one of the things a government could do, supported by the parliament, that actually could do a fair bit to, you know, restore some public confidence in the political process. The optics of the Crown story that sort of burst out this mm. week where you know, it does appear that there is a long-standing history of special favours being done to this company and uh, some sort of special relationship between politicians of either side, but of course very famously on Labor's side with uh, Sam Dastiari. And yet the Attorney-General has called for this inquiry into what's happening with Crown but assigned it to the Australian Commission for Law Enforcement and Integrity, which can examine public servants and border force officials and so on, but can't examine politicians and that's what's got Jackie all fired up. And I think that's, I mean, that's a relevant and reasonable thing to get angry about. I think so too. Amy, before we run out of time, PK's in Arnhem Land this week. That's why Annabelle is here on the party room and we're loving that. Um, She's there for Gama Festival where the issue of the voice to a parliament and constitutional recognition will be a major one, I'm sure. This week we had Pat Dodson and Linda Burney from Labor warning their colleagues of possible roadblocks in the way of this process. Really calling on Scott Morrison to get behind Ken Wyatt and sort of give him the support he needs to move this on. And we also had another Chief Justice of the High Court weighing in. Just a week or two ago it was Murray Gleeson, this week it's Robert French. And he's actually come up, I think this is a real help in this debate, I don't know what both of you think, coming up with the notion of the model in a way, which is we get it written in, recognition, there's some kind of advisory voice from Indigenous Australians, they're heard, that's written into the Constitution, but the notion of how they're heard and what that body looks like is done through legislation, which means politicians still maintain that power. Do you think this is going to help convince the doubters, Amy? Uh, I don't know, because I think this debate has become so convoluted with what the idea of a voice to parliament and the fact that it's not at all a third chamber to parliament is. I mean, and Barnaby Joyce certainly did his his work with that as well, that I'm just, I'm not sure if there's going to be enough clear air for reasonable voices to be heard on this. And really, Pat Dodson and Linda Burney and Ken Wyatt are all right when they say that there was the statement from the heart that was, you know, the First Nations saying, this is what we want. You've asked us to come up with something. We've done that. Now it's your turn. And we haven't actually seen any leadership from where it matters, which is the Prime Minister's office. And we really, really need to see that now. I think it's fascinating that there are these really powerful interventions being made by former very senior judges. I mean, in some ways, judiciary is the one of the few remaining institutions in this country that hasn't been massively devalued over the last decade or so. And so That's a good point. These are Chief Justice of the High Court. Right. And I think that Robert French's intervention this week, he wrote an essay uh, for The Australian talking about practically how this could work. And I think that the potential, particularly in this week before Gama, is that that could quieten the voices of argument a little bit and winnow it down to what is essentially a fairly simple proposition. 
So I think Amy's right. I think political leadership, to steer it in the right direction, you know, to come in behind something like the, the Robert French comments would really help. And I think that's what Linda Burney was getting at, that she just needs, she says, Scott Morrison's got to sort of come and shore up Ken Wyatt's efforts with some leadership. Well, we've got the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, on Insiders uh, this Sunday, coming live from Gama. So we'll see if he provides any clarion call of direction. We're counting on you asking the question. <laughs> He's coming <laughs> from Gama, so he'll be well prepped. Amy, thank you so much. You've been a fabulous guest. It's Terrific to have you on the party room. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. It's question time now, Annabella. This is where we get questions from listeners and we've had a lot of fantastic questions this time and I'd just like to take this opportunity to encourage everyone, particularly women listening, to send in your questions and send them in as a recording too. We love those. This one this morning comes from Richard and Richard says... In reality, our federal parliament terms are two and a half years. Is there any impetus to extend the parliamentary term? What needs to happen to change it? Annabelle? Oh, Richard. (laughs) Richard, this is an ancient and confusing and, frankly, exasperating dispute. Do you know that we had um, a royal commission in Australia in 1929? So 90 years ago, recommending fixed four-year terms in Australia. And we've been scratching our bums about it ever since. It's been, look, all of the state and territory legislatures have now moved to fixed four-year terms. Most recent was uh, Queensland. But of course, we have this sort of floaty three-year, the rules in Australia are that you have to call an election within three years of the new government taking its seats in parliament. So we know that it's um, the Prime Minister's prerogative to sort of like, oh, maybe I'll have it on this weekend or maybe it'll be that weekend. And we all wind ourselves into a frenzy because there is a strategic advantage in being able to select the date on which an election will be held. Except now, there's not anymore because oh, you know yeah. it's got to be within this. Everyone I narrows know. it down to within three weeks. period. Know, so where is the advantage? newsprint and airspace is wasted. But look, you know, we are, um, hardly any democratic countries have three-year terms. We're one of about half a dozen. El Salvador does, uh, the Philippines, Mexico, New Zealand. Most have four or five-year terms. The UK just moved to a fixed five-year term. And there is an argument, a very good argument, that a longer term with some sort of predictability means that you don't lose all this time in pre-campaign politicking, stupid rush decision-making and so on. We did put this to a referendum in 1988. The Hawke government did. Went down. One of the issues with moving to four-year terms is then what do you do about the Senate? Do you also make the Senate um, term four years or do you go to eight years, which seems a long time to be holding on to a senator. And that's sort of what tipped over the referendum in 1988. And that answer still hasn't really been um, found yet, has it? Uh, I think it's interesting that at the same time we're still debating fixed terms and still debating <laughs> lengthening them, we're now going to have a committee talking about shorter question times. I know, yes. There's, um, Why uh, shorter question times? Well, because they don't, you don't get anything out of them. I don't know. Question time does get fiddled around with. I mean, remember when Kevin Rudd um, came in as Prime Minister, he put time limits on answers. Well, that in, was good. Yeah, I know, because he was he would go up to 15 <laughs> minutes sometimes. It was just crazy. But, yeah, look, I will say just on the terms that it was Labor policy at the recent election to move to fixed four-year terms. Yeah, um, Bill Shorten's been... That's just another one thing that Anthony Albanese won't be <laughs> necessarily pursuing. Um, Malcolm Turnbull said in principle that it was a good idea too. So the problem is, I'm sorry, Richard, that this is an issue that probably people vaguely agree upon in politics, but because the electoral cycle is so short, nobody wants to spend any political capital doing it. So there you go. The wheel has come full circle.
Okay, now our second question comes from Joel on Twitter, who has asked, what are the possible consequences of breaching ministerial standards once retired? None. Is that what we're just burning <laughs> Look, out? That would be the short answer. Um, ministerial standards are tinkered with by every prime minister and um, uh, Scott Morrison uploaded a, a, a new reworked set when he became prime minister. And the section that applies to former ministers... It really, look, it says that it, once you've, uh, in the first 18 months that you are, since you were serving as a minister, you are not allowed to lobby public servants or colleagues for a, another organisation. You're not allowed to use the knowledge that you had as minister above and beyond what would be obvious to any sort of... General person. Generally smart person, um, member of the public. And the code says that they're required to undertake this. So when you sign up as a minister, you undertake to be bound by the ministerial code of conduct, including this bit that applies to what happens after you get the sack or you get turfed out by the electorate or you decide to vote with your feet and leave. Now, but it's not a law, right? It's, it is it's a law in a law. some countries. No, it's not a law. And really... You just have to be bound by the, I guess, the, the constraints of shame and um, you know, wanting bound to do the right the thing. Pub-tist. And now, really, I mean, the Prime Minister can't go and hunt down some former colleague and ask them to pull their head in. I mean, when there was a controversy recently about Christopher Pine going to work for EY to give them advice about how to, you know, expand their growing defence contracting business, there was a move by Rex Patrick, the Central Alliance senator, say, well, if this is what's happening, then the government should not give any more contracts to EY while that's happening. Now, I mean, they're never, ever going to do that. And It'll no work, one in the though. government has <laughs> suggested that, well, Christopher Pines just put out sort of a statement saying, well, I'm not going to be using my knowledge. I have a lot of skills in other areas and that's why I'll be helpful to EY, not because I know where all the submarines are buried. Public disapprobation is pretty much the, the main weapon in the arsenal. Goodbye, one and all. That's it from us. Fabulous to have Annabelle as my co-host, my sidekick, my partner in podcasting. It's Thanks, Annabelle. to join you. <laughs> Question time submissions. Always welcome people. Record them if you want. We really love them. Tweet them to us. Email them to us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. Subscribe. Rate. Review. I certainly will be when I go back to being a listener rather than a co-host. Now, before we go, Fran, convention demands that I ask you if there's a song. And there is a song, (laughs) but there is a song, nothing to do with politics except perhaps, you know, the PM's had some pretty good vibes coming his way, miracles right. and all that. It's Counterculture Week on RN all week because we're approaching the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. So Russell Stapleton, who is the musical genius behind all our songs here on The Party Room, he and I put our heads together and thought, what says the 60s? What says counterculture? Good vibes. And this, can I tell you, the Beach Boys took five months to record this song. Russell and I took about mm, two hours. <laughs> That's progress. See you, Annabelle. See you, friend. I, I love the colour clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair I hear the sound of a gentle word On the wind that lifts her perfume through the She's given me excitations I'm picking up good vibrations She's given me excitations
Stephen Stockwell here. And I'm Ruby Jones. And if you're enjoying The Party Room, you should check out our podcast, The Signal. Every weekday morning, we dive into the biggest stories making news. So far this week, we've looked at how two Canadian teenagers have become the centre of a nationwide manhunt. If Centrelink is allowed to take your tax return to pay a debt you're pretty certain you don't owe. And the entrenched problem of wage theft in hospitality and whether this might be a moment of reckoning for the industry. Look for The Signal on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.